Today, we want to finish our little mini-series on Proverbs 29, 18, which says, where there is no vision, the people perish, or they are unrestrained or out of control, but they eventually will perish where there is no revelation. And so we have made the revelation of God our resolution, not just for a year, but for every moment of every day of every single year in which we live. We do that because the Bible says we are to buy truth and never sell it, Proverbs 23, 23. So the reason the revelation of God is our resolution, because we buy truth. Not only do we buy truth, we battle for the truth. 1 Timothy 6, verse number 20, we guard it. Jude 3, we contend earnestly for the truth. And not only do we uh, battle for the truth and buy the truth, but we actually actually build on that truth. Acts 20, verse number 32, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. But not only do we build upon it, but we also bow before it. Psalm 138, verse number 2 says, Thy word, O Lord, is magnified even as thy very name. And one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so because our God is the God of truth, we bow before his truth. And we believe all that God says in his word because he is the true and living God and what he says is true. That's why. That's why his revelation is our only resolution. Without that revelation, the people perish. And we've seen that revelation helps us understand how God, how God shields us, how God shepherds us, how God satisfies us, sustains us, and strengthens us. But most importantly, how God saves us. God's revelation saves us. That without his word, without his truth, we would perish. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing surrounding a word only about the Christ. Romans 10, verse number 17. And so we understand that without God's word, we would perish. God's word saves us. And yet we come to realize that, that without that word, we would not be sustained psalmist it this way in Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse number 14, the Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. God saves those who fear his name. God does not save those who do not fear his name. There is forgiveness with thee, Psalm 130, that thou mayest be feared. Romans chapter 1 says the unbeliever has no fear of God before their eyes. But the true believer, he fears God because he knows it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He knows that he's not to fear the one who can only kill body, but the one who can kill body and soul in hell. That's the one we fear because he is the God of the universe. 
and those are the ones he saves. And that's why we looked last week in, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 13, when Christ was asked the question, are there just a few being saved? And Jesus said these words. He said, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You know, what Jesus does in Luke chapter 13 is give us a gospel framework to help us understand what is absolutely necessary when it comes to the gospel. And he begins by telling you that there must be a, a biblical repentance from iniquity. That's why he says strive to enter. Because he picks up from the narrative in, in Matthew chapter 7 where there is a, a broad road that leads to destruction. There's, a, there's a, a very wide gate. But the way that leads to life is very, very narrow. And the gate is very, very small. And the broad road is a road that does say this way to heaven. That's why it's so broad, and that's why there are so many people on it. The narrow road also says heaven. And yet, its way is only one way. It's a very unique way. It's God's way. And so Christ says, strive to enter by the narrow gate, because many of those Many of those few who find the, the narrow door, even fewer will ever get in. Why? Because salvation is about repentance. Salvation is, is about giving away my life. Salvation is about exchanging my life for God's life. Salvation says I'm done with me. I, I'm done with myself. I'm, I'm done with my goals and aspirations. I'm done with my way of living. I want God's way. I'm done with my way. That's what salvation is. And that's why Christ says you've got to strive to enter because once you get to the door to enter into glory, you have to get rid of yourself. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I've died to myself. If any man come to me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me because if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, You'll find it. How many people are really, really willing to, to lose their life for Christ's sake? And when you hear the message of the gospel that Jesus says, because we've heard it wrong for so long, we think that Jesus is wrong in his gospel presentation. But he's not. He is the gospel. We have diluted the gospel so much that anybody who believes anything can get in. But that's not what the scriptures teach. Not at all. In fact, it says in Luke chapter 16 that, that, that many are forcing their way into the kingdom. Why? Because I'm, I'm struggling with my sin and I'm crucifying myself, I'm denying myself, and I'm willing to take up my cross and follow him. That's a biblical repentance. According to 2 Timothy chapter 2, that's a, that's a gift that God gives to people. So we talked about this last week. There is a biblical repentance 
from iniquity, which Christ talks about. But then he says this, you must understand that there is a vital realization of the urgency. Listen to what Jesus says. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Christ wants you to understand there is a vital realization of the absolute urgency that today is the day. Do not wait. Do not prolong this. Do not put it off. If you, today, if you hear his voice, Hebrews chapter 3, do not harden your hearts as in the day of provocation in the wilderness. Why? Because you need to come to the, the king. You need to bow before him. There's an urgency that if you don't come, the door's going to be shut. How, does, how is the door shut? Who shuts the door? Christ does. You don't. I don't. Christ shuts the door. He is the door, right? He is the gate. I am the door, he says. But I'm the one who shuts the door. How do you know when he shuts the door? Well, if you die in your sins, the door is shut, right? There's no chance of salvation after you die. That's why you need to give your life to Christ before you die. But no one knows when they're going to die. Every death is a divine appointment. And no one knows when that appointment is. We can kind of speculate. We can kind of think. We can kind of have a a good idea. But no one really knows. But when you die, the door is shut. When Jesus comes again, the door is shut. He's going to come and bring relief to those who love him and retribution on those who do not obey the gospel. Those who do not love him. That's what we've been looking at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10 on, on Wednesday nights. So when Jesus comes again, the door is shut. When you die, the door is shut. Or, listen to this, the Lord can shut the door anytime he desires to because his patience is over. In Genesis 6, verse number 5, the Lord said, I will not always strive with man. In other words, our Lord is long-suffering. Our Lord is very patient. But there is a time when that long-suffering is over and the door is shut. God's patience wears thin and the door is shut. In Romans chapter 1, it's called abandonment. Three times in Romans 1, it says, and God gave them over. And God gave them over. And God gave them over. When God gives you over to your degrading passions, when God gives you over to your depraved lifestyle, when God gives you over to your lustful desires and passions, when God does that, he has abandoned you. That means there is a door that's been shut and it's impossible, Hebrews 6, to ever renew you to repentance. Hebrews 10, if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the full knowledge of the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. In other words, there comes a time where God shuts the door and the opportunity to repent 
is no more. You just don't know when that day is. Only God does. Jesus knows that. So he says, you want to ask me about how many people are getting saved? I'm going to tell you, listen, I know the number, but that's irrelevant. You better strive to enter. Because I'm going to let you know that many who get to the door of the few of Matthew 7, never going to get in. They don't want to count the cost. They don't want to give their life away. They don't want to bow in submission to the lordship of Christ. They want to be in control of their own lives. They want to do their own thing. So few will ever get in. But be careful. Because the door is going to shut. And once the door shuts, it'll never open again. It'll shut at death. It'll shut when Christ comes again. But it shuts when he abandons the soul and says, that is it, no more opportunity. We just don't know when that is. That's why the writer of Hebrews has those five warning passages that we're talking about when we get back to Hebrews. About all those warnings, you better, today's the day. Don't put it off any longer. How shall we escape what? The wrath of God. If we neglect so great a salvation, answer, you won't escape. So now is the day. Now is the time. Matthew 25. In Matthew chapter 25, our Lord gives a parable. Two parables. In a row about the tragedy of of wasted opportunity and being irresponsible and not recognizing the time. Matthew 25 is on the Elevate Discourse. Matthew 24 and 25 is all about Christ talking to his men on the eve of of the crucifixion, helping them understand the end times, the end of the age. So there he is in the Mount of Olives spelling all these things out to them. And then he says this, Matthew 25, verse number one. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the hour, the day, nor the hour. Our Lord gives an analogy, a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. 
a story that all the men would know about Jewish weddings and what they entail. But it's very allegorical to understand that there were, there were five prudent virgins and five foolish virgins. He's talking about the opportunity to understand that you better, you better come to Christ now and, and not wait because when he comes again and, and you're not ready, the door is shut. You'll never get in. These virgins, these five foolish virgins, were ones that liked to hang around the bride and the bridegroom. They're like people like to hang around church and be a part of church and, and do things in the church. But they have no life. They have no internal life. The parable says they have no oil, but the, the, the oil could be representative of the Holy Spirit. It could be representative of life in Christ. But they have no life. So when the bridegroom comes, the door is shut. The five foolish virgins never get in. Lord, open up to us. The Lord says, I'm sorry. I never knew you. There was no relationship there. Which leads us to our, th our third point. Not only is there a biblical repentance from iniquity, and not only, number two, is there a vital realization of the urgency, but there is a personal relationship with deity. A personal relationship with deity. The Lord says these words in Luke chapter 16. I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evil doers. See, the tragic thing is, the shocking thing is, they think they know him, but they don't. Do you know that hell is going to be filled with people filled with shock, horror, thinking, what am I doing here? I thought I knew him. Why am I in hell? Because we ate with you. In, in, in Judaism, there's this meal that they have. It's a, it's a dining time. You know, today we... we we, we just scarf it down and move on to the next thing. We don't have time to sit down and the family meal is kind of out to lunch. It's gone away nowadays. But in Judaism, there was this meal where you sit down and you dine with someone. You had friendship with them. You, you had a relationship with them. And you spent time engaging them, they and you. And they said, Lord, but we ate with you. We were with you. We were side by side with you. In Matthew's account, they did many miracles in the name of God. We did many things for you. We served you. Not only did we eat with you, not only did we fellowship with you, we served you. We did many marvelous things in your name. And Christ says, I never knew you. You're an evildoer. You practice lawlessness. That's why we've said over the years, listen, my greatest fear is that the, it's not that you're going to go to hell. My greatest fear is that you think you're going to go to heaven and wake up in hell. That's my greatest fear. I don't want you ever to be duped into thinking you're going to heaven. I'd rather have you examine your life every single day and say, Lord, do I know you 
Am I really saved? Are you in me and me in you? That's, that's what salvation is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And how do you know Christ is in you? Listen, if Christ is in you, your conversation's different. Your conduct is different. Why? Because you have been consecrated by God. You are convicted by God. You are cleansed by God. You are comforted by God. All of those things are, are about God in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what salvation is. It's Christ in me over and over again. The scriptures speak about Christ being in us. That's the miracle of the new birth. That's what salvation is all about. That's what it means to be a new creation. My conversation, my conduct is all new. It's all changed. If you look at your life and nothing's changed, there's a good chance Jesus isn't in you. Better yet, you better ask somebody else if your life has changed. Because your heart's deceitful and desperately wicked, and you'll probably think you're changed. Ask somebody else, have I changed? Is there something about me that's different than it was before? It's the convicting, cleansing, comforting work of the Spirit of God in the man of God, in the woman of God, that's always working. God's word effectually works in you who believe, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. In other words, when I hear the word of God, it's already doing its cleansing work. It's already doing its effectual work. It's already doing its powerful work. It's already doing something. If it's not doing anything, chances are you don't know the Lord. And that's why there are so many people sitting in churches today thinking they're going to heaven but they're not. And Jesus didn't want anybody in that category following him. Jesus didn't want anybody in that category thinking they were on their way to heaven and be in for the shock of eternity. To realize, mm, I thought I ate with you. I thought we dined together. I, I thought I served you in the church. I, I, I thought I went on trips with you. Lord, I, I did all this for you. Christ never knew him. How sad is that? Because he never had a, a, a personal, intimate relationship with the King of Kings and, and with the Lord of Lords. The crushing finality is that I never knew you. There was no repentance. If there is no repentance, there's no reconciliation. If there's no reconciliation, there's no regeneration. In other words, if you haven't truly repented of your sin, if you're trying to add Jesus to your existing lifestyle and just trying to put Jesus on the caboose and try to move along with Christianity, that's not what Christianity is. You don't add Jesus to your lifestyle. He completely alters and transforms your entire life. That's why you're called a new creation. You're not an old creation. You're a new creation. Jesus doesn't just hop on your life. He turns it upside down. Turns it all around drastically. That's salvation. That's why the question was asked, are there only a few being saved? Because nobody's lives are turning around. Everybody's doing the same thing they've always been doing. So Lord, is it true that only a few are being saved? And Jesus said, you better strive to enter. Because many, I tell you, who get to that door, very few ever get in. But you need to understand something. If you don't enter today, right now, 
you're in danger of the door shutting and never having the opportunity to repent again. You just never know when that's going to happen. Only God knows that. Only God knows that. And that's why there are so many warnings in Scripture. That's why you're always called to examine yourself in Scripture. Why? Because you need to put yourself under the microscope of the Word of God and say, do I know Christ? Do I, am I a follower of the true and living God? Have I denied myself? Have I taken up my cross daily? Am I following him? Is there self-denial? Is there self-sacrifice? Is there submission? Is there surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord of my life? If not, you need to make sure you do that today. So, there is a, a biblical repentance from iniquity. There is a vital realization of the urgency, a personal relationship with deity, and essential recognition of eternity. Listen to what Jesus says. This is so rich. He says these words. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, ekbalo, to be cast out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Isn't it interesting what Jesus says? He says, you better turn from your sin. You better strive to enter. You better follow me. Why? Because there's an urgency behind this. The door's going to shut. And how do you know you're going to get in? You've got a personal relationship with the living God. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, listen, if you do, everything about your marriage is going to be great. Everything about your workplace is going to just be enhanced. You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to become wealthy. You're going to become healthy. You're going to get better physically. He doesn't say anything about now. Because in Christ's mind, the now is irrelevant. It's about eternity. That's why he goes there. There's an essential recognition of eternity. You see, when you present the gospel, it's not about this life. God saves you in this life for the next life. He saves you in this life from him in the next life. But our gospel presentation, have you noticed, all focuses on this life right now. But Jesus never did. It wasn't about your personal prosperity or your wealth or your health or anything like that, your marriage or your family. That's all irrelevant when it comes to the kingdom of God and eternity. All that matters is eternal life. But we get so enraptured with today. Everything that we think of is about now. Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Don't even think about tomorrow. You better come to Christ today. Because this is the day that matters. And what decision you make today will affect your tomorrows, will affect your eternity. So he goes right to eternity. Why does he do that? Because he knows that if the door is shut, they will be in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
That's a phrase used eight times in Matthew's gospel alone to describe those who thought they were on their way to heaven only to realize that they end up in hell and there is this bitterness, there's this resentment forever, for eternity. Listen, hell is not for a while, it's forever. Listen, hell is forever. How do you know hell is forever? Because an eternal God who created an eternal heaven created an eternal hell. Everything about God is forever. It's never for a while. It's forever. And he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is what? He is eternal. Listen, if you don't believe in the eternality of hell, you have denied the character of God. You've denied his eternality. You've denied his wrath. You've denied his justice. You've denied his mercy. You've denied his grace. You've denied God. And if you deny God, he who comes to me must believe that I am. He who comes to God must believe that he is. He's rewarded those who diligently seek him. You can't come to God unless you believe that he is who he says he is. And if you deny the eternality of hell, you deny the eternality of God. And if you deny the eternality of God, you have denied everything about who he is. And you miss heaven. Because you do not know God. See, heaven and hell is not a trivial matter. It's everything. It's everything. And the miracle of the gospel is that he saves us. He saves us from who? Himself. Why does God save us from himself? Because he knows that if you don't come to him, you will perish without him. Without the revelation of God, the people perish. And that perish is forever. It's just not for a little bit of time. Because it centers around the character and nature of the true and living God. He saves us. And because he saves us, he shields us and protects us. He shepherds us. He sustains us. He satisfies us. He strengthens us. He secures us. He does all those things because he saves us. He doesn't shepherd those who aren't saved. He doesn't satisfy those who aren't saved. He doesn't strengthen those who aren't saved. If you are saved, you are empowered by the true and living God who protects and provides and watches over and cares for his own sheep. And because he saves you, he sanctifies you. That's number six, I think. He sanctifies you. He sets you apart. He saves you to set you apart. Apart from what? Apart from the world. Apart from everything else. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Then over in chapter 6, he says these words, verse number 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Paul says, listen, don't think something that's not true. Don't let someone come along and deceive you. 
He says, listen, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's not an inclusive list. That's a representative list. Because if you go to the book of Revelation and the book of Galatians, there are other lists that, don't, that include other things. It's those who habitually engage in these kinds of activities that will never inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says. He says, look, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were cleansed. You were consecrated. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. When God cleansed you, he cleansed you for a purpose. And that was to set you apart for his glory and for his honor. We are sanctified at salvation. And yet there is this constant sanctification process that we're engaged in. That's why the Lord said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth for your word is truth. We're set apart by truth, right? When God saves us, he sets us apart. He does it with the truth of God's word. And yet he continues to cleanse us through that word. He continually sets us apart by his word. That's why without a revelation, the people are unrestrained. They are out of control. They will perish. But with the revelation of God, they will not perish. They will not be out of control. Why? Because the word of God sanctifies the life. It sets it apart for God and his purposes. And God says, I got a purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim the gospel through you as a vessel as a spokesperson, as an ambassador for the kingdom of God. We've been set apart. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved in the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sets you apart. He sanctified you because he clothed you with his righteousness. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul would say this to those in Thessalonica. He says, finally then, brethren, chapter 4, verse number 1, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do, and that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. And then he says, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called, you, called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. God has called us to set us apart. Our Lord is a holy God. He says in 1 Peter 1, I want you to be holy as I am holy. Taken right from the book of Leviticus, a book all about the holiness of God. That's why you have all those, all those laws and all the formality in the book of Leviticus because it's all about God's holiness. 
God just says, I just want you to be like me. That's it. Holy like me. The only way I can do that is to save you and sanctify you. Cleanse you and consecrate you. And then cause you to walk in my spirit and follow me. I wonder how God is in the process of sanctifying you in this very moment. Setting you apart. Matching matching your everyday life with your position in glory. We've been set aside, set apart for God and his purposes that we might rule and reign with him for all eternity. But he didn't take us home yet. Having saved us, having sanctified us, having shielded us, shepherded us, having satisfied, sustained, and strengthened us, guess what? He now sends us. That's number seven. He sends us. John 20, verse number 21. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. The Lord tells his men, I was sent. I was sent And now I'm sending you. I was sent in person. I was sent by promise. I was sent in power. I was sent in purity. I was sent for people. I was sent for praise. Now I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you so others will know about me. That's why I sanctify you. That's why I set you apart. What did Charles Spurgeon say? An ill life will drown the most eloquent ministry. I don't care how eloquent your ministry is, how great you think it is, if you live an ill life, that ill life will drown out everything you do externally. Eventually, it will do that. And so God says, I, I saved you that I might set you apart, that I'm, you might be holy like I am holy, separate from corruption, separate from creation. That's what it means to be holy, right? To be set apart from corruption and creation. And our Lord is the ultimate separate one because he is totally separate from his creation. He says, you thought I was just like you, but I'm not. He's totally separate, separate from corruption because he is holy, holy, holy. He is pure on the inside, pure through and through. And now I'm going to set you apart that you might be free and set apart from creation and all corruption. Because I'm going to send you as the Father sent me. I'm going to send you in person to go into all the world and make disciples, to be my ambassador. And I'm going to send you in my power, because I'm going to give you my spirit, that you might accomplish my purposes. I'm going to send you in purity. That's why I sanctified you. That's why I cleansed you. That's why I want you to be in the word of God so that you're a clean vessel, fit and honorable for the master's use. And I'm going to send you for the ultimate praise of my kingdom and my glory. But as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Because without a revelation, the people will perish. And you become my spokesperson. You become the person 
who opens the word of God and speaks truth so others will hear it and believe. God's revelation is our only resolution. Whenever you wake up, at any moment of any day, you wake up saying, today, Lord, what you have said, I have resolved not just to buy, not just to battle for, not just to bow before, not just to build upon, but to believe and obey. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today. A chance to be in your word once again, to be challenged with your word. Our prayer for anyone here today who might not understand your salvation, may today be the day they give their life to Christ. May they not wait any longer, not knowing when the door will shut and the opportunity will be gone. We never know that this side of eternity. Only you know that. But we do know that when death happens, the door is shut. When you come again, the door will be shut. So we preach the gospel. We tell others with urgency, look at eternity. Look at the future. Will you be with Christ or without him? The place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Or will you be in a place of ultimate bliss and glory because you're in the presence of the living God. Lord, we pray. Do a mighty work in all of us. And Lord, as, as you have said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. May we leave this place knowing that we've been sent by you for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.